0: Good afternoon. It's good to be here with all of you Uh, if if this is your first time or you're visiting. Welcome to Zoe Community Church. We're glad you're here. My name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors at this church. Um, Today, it's kind of a special Sunday because the first United Methodist Church that owns this building, uh, this is their church, they told us that we got to be out of here by 245. With me, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. It it, it really stressed us out, um, especially because Eric's not here. Eric is the one who's kind of on top of the time kind of thing. Uh, James told me he had a nightmare that we actually didn't finish on time. It was 2.52, and I was still, like, closing in prayer. And he said they were, like, coming up and unplugging the mics and stuff, turning us off kicking us out, and now I'm just talking about this and wasting more time, so sorry about that. Um, but anyway, um, at around like 2.40, if I'm not done, just try to signal me, okay? Maybe, you know, just, just help me out. Um, but we're continuing our series through the book of 2 Samuel, and it'll take as long as it takes, right? So 2 Samuel, a series we're calling King of Kings. So if you could open your Bibles to 2 Samuel 15, that's where we are right now. 2 oh, Samuel 15. We're going to be in kind of the second part of this chapter. Last week, Eric looked at 2 Samuel 1, uh, 15, 1 through verse 12, and we're going to pick up in verse 13 today. Um, and as we've been doing, I'm not going to read the whole thing at the front end. Instead, I'm going to read it as we go along, kind of let the narrative unfold for us as we make our way through it. So let me uh, let me wait for you to get there, and then let me pray, uh, and then we'll get into it. Second Samuel 15. Everyone good? Okay, let me pray. Let me pray. Father, we come before you this afternoon, God, and we are we are coming from all different places. God, some of us are doing really well. God, we've been thinking about you all week. Some of us have been struggling a little bit. Some of us, God, have uh, honestly been distracted and distant from you. And yet, Father, you brought all of us here to worship you, to sit under the teaching of your word. And, God, we know that your word has something for us every time we sit under it. And today, Father, as we look at 2 Samuel 15, I know that there is definitely a word for us here, especially for those of us who have been going through difficulty, God, and and suffering and trial and tribulation. God, as we saying, we know that you are the one who gives and you are the one who takes away. And that can be hard for us to, to really think about and accept. But God, I pray that as we look at what you have to say to us, as we look at the life of your servant and at your son, really, David, God, I pray that you would encourage those of us who are discouraged. God, I pray that you convict us who are hard-hearted. And God, most of all, Father, I pray that you would reveal to all of us who Jesus is, that we might find life and salvation in him. God, all glory to Christ. We want this time to be about him and not about us. So I pray that you would open our eyes and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Brent was only 14 when he was admitted to the Children's National Medical Center's Special Burn Unit in Washington, D.C. I never found out exactly what happened. When I found out about Brent, it was already after the fact. But a full 85% of his body was covered with burns. He would look down at his legs, and he didn't even recognize them as his own, or even as human legs, he would say. He saw them. They were this unnatural shade of purple and red mixed together, and on his left uh, left thigh especially, he, he saw where the burn had gone all the way down through all layers of his skin to the muscle. And there was just a hole there. And he would look at his legs, and he didn't know what to think. During those first few weeks, he grew to hate his nervous system. That's what he said. The pain was like an air horn that wouldn't stop Blaring. And then Tina, his nurse, would come in every day, multiple times a day to clean his wound. She knew how painful this was, but she had to do it. And so she told him, don't even try to hold it in. Okay, don't try to pretend it doesn't hurt or, or it hurts less than it does. I know that it hurts. It's okay to yell out and scream And so Brent, who said it felt like his skin was tissue paper and the sponge was like steel wool, would scream until he was completely exhausted. And then he tried to rest a little until Tina came back just eight hours later to do it again. Every day, every eight hours. Now, the thing is, pain, it's unpleasant, right? At best, and can be unbearable at worst. In general, people despise pain, and many of us would do whatever we could to avoid it, to get out of it, to not have to feel it at all. But the truth is, we can't. You can't, I can't, we can't avoid it, not completely. And though maybe, you know, hopefully, None of you have ever gone through what Brent had to experience. You didn't get burned basically within an inch of your life. All of us have suffered in some way. Some of us a lot. Injuries, illnesses, chronic things that just won't go away. And pain, as you know, is not just physical. Right? Pain uh, can be different. Others of us have been given different cups to drink, a different kind of pain, the pain of loneliness maybe, or betrayal or loss, the loss of a loved one. It'll hit you like a ton of bricks. It'll just be going about your day, just living your life. It'll kind of slip out the back of your mind, but then something will trigger it and you'll remember it'll all come flooding back and the pain will tear at your tissue paper heart like steel wool, whatever it is. Whatever it was for you, whatever it is right now for you, how does it feel? You know, suffering is kind of interesting and sad too, but suffering, I think, is where religion fails people a lot of the time. There's a certain brand of Christianity, and we've talked about this in the past, or what they preach is a life devoid of suffering. That's kind of the promise. If you live for God, if you have faith in him, if you give a lot of money to God and sacrifice, then God will bless you in return with an abundance of health and bountiful wealth. And it attracts a lot of people because we live in a world where there is a lot of pain and suffering. And there are so many people who have had to learn the lesson the hard way that what these people are promising isn't what God says and it isn't true. And then you have religions like Buddhism which basically major on pain, right? What Buddhism says is that life is suffering. Life is pain. And the whole thing is to try to escape it in some way through meditation, through enlightenment, and through transcending above this world that is filled with all sorts of different kinds of suffering and sadness. But you know what Tina used to say to Brent when she would put him through the pain of cleaning his wounds? Now, the burn really hurt, but in some ways the cleaning hurt even worse. But she explained to him that this pain, the pain of cleaning his burning or his burn wounds was actually a good sign because it meant that his nerves were firing okay, that his skin was starting to heal. She told him every day, every eight hours before she put him through this torture that the pain meant in this case that he was getting better. And what does the word of God say? James 1, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, no one's saying that pain is in of itself something we should desire for pain's sake. But is it possible Let's start here. Is it possible that pain, the pain that you and I experience in our lives, is it possible that it actually has a purpose? Is it possible that as Nurse Tina told Brent, that it could actually be maybe for you a good sign of something? See, we've come to a passage in Second Samuel where David is confronted with really the greatest and worst trial of his life. That's what I would argue, at least. We've never seen him break down the way that he does here. We've never seen him weep the way that he weeps here. And it's not like he's had an easy life. I mean, we've started with David from the beginning. You guys have been with us, some of you, since the beginning. You know what David has gone through. When David was first anointed king, he didn't immediately just get whisked away to the palace. He didn't become this king living a luxurious life. In fact, the first major thing he did was get into a one-on-one battle with the Philistine champion, Goliath. He put his neck on the line. And then Saul, the king God, anointed David to replace. He hunted David down out of, je- uh, out of jealousy. He made David's life miserable. He drove him out of his homeland into the wilderness, away from comfort and family and his own people. And then when it seemed like things were turning around, you know, Saul was gone. David ascended to the throne. There was peace. He had a lot of children. There was a promise made about his children that one of them or that his line would stay on the throne forever. When all these things were looking good, David committed adultery with the wife of his loyal servant. And then when he found out she was pregnant, he had her husband killed. And now everything has fallen apart. Everything that we've seen in the past few chapters, it's all because of the sin that he committed. It's all the fallout from that one despicable act. God sent the prophet Nathan to tell him that the sword from that day forward would never depart from his house. And that's all we've been seeing. I mean, for the past few chapters, what do we see? We saw David's firstborn son, the crown prince. He raped his half-sister. And then David's other son, Absalom, who was Tamar's full brother, killed his older brother in revenge. And you see that David doesn't know what to do exactly. His guilt over his own sin seems to keep him from being able to strongly deal with either of his sons. How could he confront a murderer when he is a murderer? How could he confront someone who has fallen into sexual sin when he has done the same thing? And so we've seen recently that David doesn't know what to do. He doesn't punish. He doesn't pardon. He just does nothing. And now Absalom... Is back in Israel and David still hasn't resolved the issue. And the fire in David's house, so to speak, just keeps growing. He just leaves it alone. But it doesn't go away. It just grows and grows and grows more out of control. And now, as we saw last week, Absalom has made his move. He has seized the throne by cunning. And he's about to fall upon Jerusalem to take the crown by force. And here we are in 2 Samuel 15, verse 13. God is about to put David through the worst fire of his life. But here's the thing. As we'll see in this text, fire, it does burn and it does hurt. But fire has another purpose. As the Bible talks about elsewhere, fire also refines. And there's hope in that. So let's get into it. We're going to make our way through this text in three parts, three acts. The first one, the trial, the trial, which is about the opportunity pain gives us to take stock of where we're at, to learn about ourselves. Verse 13. And a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. So we pick up where we left off. Absalom through charm and manipulation has stolen the hearts of the people right under David's nose. And now Absalom has made his play with strong support. He now has declared himself king in Hebron. So a messenger comes running back to David, the king and notice he doesn't even say what Absalom did. He just says that Absalom has won the hearts of Israel And this is all David needs to hear. Immediately, he kind of figures out. He puts two and two together. David knows the danger he's in and everyone with him. Verse 14. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. So what we're seeing here is that David, who has kind of seemed checked out a little bit recently, he actually knows exactly what Absalom is capable of. I mean, we've seen that, right? Absalom, he waited two whole years, pretending like everything was cool, before he killed Amnon, his older brother, in revenge. And then, remember, when he came back to Israel... He went up to Joab. He wanted Joab to like bring him back to the king. Joab is his cousin. He's the general of the armies of Israel. And when Joab doesn't respond right away, Absalom actually burns his field. He's kind of an unhinged guy. He's a man of cruel action. But David has done nothing to acknowledge or address this. In fact, one thing you could say about David these past few chapters is that he's a man of inaction. But here... Once he finds out that Absalom is on his way, that Absalom is doing stuff, David is surprisingly sharp and decisive. We need to get out of here right now. And this is surprising because if you look at verse 15, and the king's servant said to the king, behold, your servants are ready to do Whatever my Lord, the King decides. Now we might be tempted to skip over this verse, but this is important context. This gives us a little bit about what's going on beneath the surface. Verse 14, David says, okay, we got to do all this stuff. Let's arise. Let's go quickly. Now let's flee, but no one does anything. Do you notice that? He said, let's go, let's go, let's go. Everyone says, okay, when you decide what you want us to do, then we'll do it. It's almost like they're not used to him taking action at all. They're not used to him commanding them to do stuff anymore. It's as if they're used to hearing him talk about stuff all the time, but he never actually decides on a course of action. And that's really what David's been about for the past few chapters. It's not that they aren't loyal. It's just obvious they've lost some confidence in his leadership. But look at verse 16. So the king went out and all his household after him and the king left 10 concubines to keep the house. Verse 17. And the king went out and all the people after him and they halted at the last house. Twice we're told that David went out. So what we see here is that David for the first time in forever is acting. He's walking the walk and the people walk after him. David leads by example. He moves quickly. And in doing so, he saves a lot of lives. And we got to understand the significance of what we're being shown here. For the first time in a long, long time, David is acting like the king of Israel should act. For the first time in what feels like ages, we're seeing David lead. And yes, he's fleeing. He's running away. Okay. But He's doing this. He's taking the steps necessary to help his people. It's honestly, if you've been reading 2 Samuel, it's honestly a little refreshing. Because where was that David that we met so long ago? Where was the David that challenged Goliath? It's refreshing. And yet, this wouldn't have happened unless Absalom was knocking on the door of Jerusalem with a sword in his hand. Now that's kind of the first thing that we need to understand about trials and difficulties and pain and suffering is that they move us, they push us in ways that nothing else will. You know, I have a friend who, when he was in high school, he was literally one of the best soccer players in the whole country. He had all these division one, uh, scholarship offers he played on like the national youth team or whatever and he really was one of those guys where sports were everything but he wasn't one of those guys who uh, just talked about it he actually had a clear pathway toward making a living to being rich to playing professionally but right before his senior season disaster knocked on the door of his life really disaster broke down the door my friend broke his leg really bad I don't know if it was the beginning of the year or in the summer. I forget the exact time, um, but the whole season was gone and all the scholarship offers and everything just dried up because no one knew if he was going to recover. His future was in jeopardy. His whole identity was shaken. And I met him after all of this. Okay, he's a little older than me. I actually learned about this when he was sharing his testimony one time. But as he shared his story, he said something that I never forgot. He said, looking back now, Looking back now, and he was probably in his 30s then, he said, looking back now, I hate the person I was. I hate the person I used to be. He said he used to be proud and arrogant. And even though he claimed to be a Christian and on the outside, he seemed like a great guy in every way. He never really felt like he needed God before then. But when he broke his leg, he was forced to actually face himself, who he was, what he actually believed, even the uglier parts of his own heart. And, you know, it's crazy because he actually did end up uh, recovering. He played professional soccer for a while, but his life was completely different. C.S. Lewis once said, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Sometimes the worst things in the world are exactly what we need. And I know that this can be difficult to hear. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to make light of anyone's suffering, just saying like, God, works it for good. Thumbs up. Get out of here. 2.45. God does have a plan. He does work things for good. Okay, that is true, but it's not easy. Pain is painful. But this is where we're going to start. All right? Nothing can get a hold of our attention like pain. And the first thing that some of us have to ask the first thing that some of us, maybe many of us have to ask if you're going through something or if there was something that happened to you, you got to at least ask the question, have I been ignoring something in my life for too long? See Absalom's insurrection is the blaring alarm that causes David to finally wake up. Now we have to understand something. Okay. All of our suffering is different. But with David, okay, in particular, this is the worst thing that could happen, honestly. David's hopes have been in his sons for all this time. The promise wasn't that he would be king forever. The promise wasn't in him. The promise was in his line. They said, the prophet said, God said, that one of his offspring would sit on the throne forever. There would always be a son of David who would sit on the throne. So he's placed his hopes in his sons, and yet his firstborn son Amnon was terrible. And now Absalom is king, but he is also terrible. God said the salvation of Israel and the world would rest on his line, but he looks at his line and he sees a mess. And now Absalom is coming to take the crown by force, and it's Absalom himself that makes this so bad too. See, with Absalom, we talked about all these things about him. He's a manipulator. He's fake. Uh, Eric talked about how he's using the old tricks of the trade to try to win people over to himself. We talked about how unhinged he is, how dangerous he is. But understand that in a lot of ways, David created Absalom. One, David was his father, right? Half of Absalom's DNA is David's. We talked about how David, or excuse me, we talked about how Absalom is like a new Saul too. So this is like a blast from the past. He's known, Absalom is known for his outer appearance. His stature is impressive. Now he's going to hunt David. I mean, it seems like history is repeating itself. A new Saul on the throne. But the worst part about it is that Absalom is actually doing it like David. He's a lot like his father. Remember, David won the hearts of the people way before he ever stepped foot into the palace. He was so popular. That's why Saul was so jealous. Popularity is David's superpower. David is the kind of guy who is lovable and likable. And we see that with Absalom too. Absalom has the same charm, the same gifting as David, except for Absalom has weaponized it against him. In fact, I heard someone say that Absalom is basically who Saul thought David was. A young upstart, popular, trying to steal the throne. And then even on top of this, David, in a lot of ways, he pushed Absalom here. He didn't punish Amnon for two years. And it's been a while. You might have forgotten. But after Amnon violated his sister Tamar, Tamar didn't go to David. She went to Absalom. She went to her brother Absalom. And she's kind of like, what are we going to do? And Absalom says, there's nothing we can do, basically. Because he knew that David wasn't going to do a thing about it. Absalom just knew that he couldn't trust his father. That's how disillusioned he was with David all the way back then. And then when Absalom killed Amnon himself, he ran away and David still didn't do anything. He didn't go after him to hold him accountable. He didn't go after him to reconcile with him. And then when he brought him back, he still wouldn't see him. And this went on for years. So, I mean, how has David demonstrated to Absalom that he is a good father? How has he demonstrated that he is a worthy king? So as David rushes out with everyone, as he tries to get everyone to safety, you got to think about how this is actually playing out. Absalom is on his way. Absalom's conspiracy is growing strong. We need to get out of here before Absalom arrives. David is confronted again and again as he tells people what the situation is, as he leaves his concubines to hold down the fort, as he tries to rush his children out. He has to tell them that the reason why everything is falling apart is because Absalom, his son, is coming. So you see, there's no way to get around it. He's confronted in the face of his son with the choices he's made and the person he's been. Now, maybe like with David, you can see your own fingerprints on the suffering that has afflicted you. You know your own hand was a part of it. Clearly, you admit it. But the first question is, have you dealt with it? Like, what did God show you? Have you repented of it? Have you dealt with the stuff that led to where you are now? But for some of us, that's not the case, right? It's not because of anything we've done with my friend. It's not like he uh, tried to kick someone or something and he broke his leg. It just happened. His suffering seemingly came out of nowhere. Not all suffering is punishment. Not all pain is discipline. The reason Job suffered wasn't his sin. It was actually his righteousness. And yet still... When God allows suffering and pain and difficulty into your life, we have to understand that he's using it in some way. Pain can still be our teacher. Nothing speaks to us quite like pain. Is there something that God wants you to see in your life? Is there something that God is revealing to you about your own character? Is God using your pain to move you in a different direction? Is God revealing to you something about yourself or about himself? And this leads to the second point. We're not going to end just with that. The second point, the trust. So the trial comes into David's life. How does he respond to trust, which is about the opportunity pain gives us to draw closer to God in a unique way. Verse 18. And all his servants passed by him and all the Cherethites and all the Pelethites and all the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Now, things are dangerous now. You've got to understand this. Because the person who is coming against them isn't an enemy from outside. He's actually the king's own son. He's flesh and blood of the king. Uh, if this was a film, the music would change. There is no peaceful exchange of power. And because it's a conspiracy from his own household, David doesn't know who to trust. You got to understand this. I mean, they say blood is thicker than water, but his enemy is his own son. So really, there's no one that he can count on for sure, 100%. So as they flee, all of David's servants are moving, his family, all these people that are in the court. And among them are all these non-Israelites that are listed out for us. The Cherethites, the Pelethites. We don't know that much about them. Just know that they're non-Israelites. But notice the Gittites passed before him. There are 600 Gittites with him. And they're from Gath. Now, Gath, it's been a while since we talked about the Philistines, but Gath is one of the five main cities of the Philistines, and the Philistines are Israel's greatest enemy at this time. So there are 600 Philistines with him, verse 19. Then the king said to Ittai, who's the leader of the Gittites, "'Why do you also go with us? "'Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. "'You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us? "'Since I go, I know not where?' Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. David, he seems resigned here. These Philistines are mercenaries. They are of Israel's enemies, and yes, they've been with David for a long time, but really in the big scheme of things, that's what he says by, you've only been with us yesterday, since yesterday. It might as well be since yesterday. I mean, we don't have history together. You're not part of the promised land. You didn't come from Egypt with us. David seems to be accepting the situation. Just go. It's all right. I get it. I just want to free you. Let's just end on good terms before things really get hairy. But look at verse 21. But Ittai answered the king as the Lord, notice that, lives. And as my lord, the king lives, wherever my lord, the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, go then, pass on. So Ittai the passed on with all his men and all the little ones who are with him. Now, it's easy to just skim over this, but this is incredible because in David's darkest hour, his Gittite friend Ittai shows David the greatest loyalty that we've seen yet, or at least in a long time. When his people have gone after another king, understand, this foreigner stands by him. When his own son seeks his life, this man says, whether for death or for life, I'm with you to the end. I mean, this is like Ruth leaving everything for Naomi, that, that kind of level of loyalty and steadfast love. And notice what's at the heart of it. This is the point. Ittai swears by whom? Not by their relationship, not by his own character, not by the Philistine gods. He swears by the Lord, all capital letters. And we talked about this. When in the Bible, it says Lord with all caps. It's not just the word Lord, but it's the name Yahweh, the personal covenant name of Israel's God. And this puts things in perspective for a minute. Blood is thicker than water, but there's something thicker than blood. It's the steadfast love of Yahweh God. Trust in the same God is worth more than having the same DNA even. We're being reminded of what's really important here. And it's crazy how that happens sometimes. The worst situation helps us to remember what's actually most important. Now look at verse 23. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the book Kidron, uh, Brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with the Levites, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Now, this might be a little confusing because you just have all these people walking and coming up, all these names that we aren't familiar with but basically what's happening is everyone who's on David's side is trying to get out of the city as fast as possible. Men, women, children, little ones. We saw at the end of verse 22, there are Philistine mercenaries. There's David's family. And then there are people who work and live for David's regime, you could say. And among them are uh, Abiathar and Zadok—they are the priests. They are the co-high priests of Israel at this point in history, and so it makes sense, right? They are part of the—they're uh, part of the government, right? When David's in charge, they're bringing the Ark of the Covenant with them. They're going to try to flee Jerusalem with David. They don't want the Ark to fall into Absalom's hands. Now, it's been a while since we talked about the Ark, too, but the Ark is important. In fact, I was thinking about this the other day because I saw that they're making a new Indiana Jones movie. I think Harrison Ford is only like 99 years old, so they can make a few more. Um, But most people, their point of reference, at least from like my generation and up, is Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's a box. Do you guys remember this? In the Bible, and especially in 1 Samuel, we see how the Ark functions, though. The Ark was commanded by God to be created for the people of Israel. It was a box. It held the Ten Commandments, the original tablets, and they put it in the holiest place in the tabernacle, and God's presence was said to dwell with the ark, or even in the ark. So back in the day, you remember, Israel kind of had this superstitious belief in the ark. A lot of people didn't really trust in God, and they would bring the ark with them when they wanted to bring God with them, and God taught them a lesson the hard way that he's not just in a box. Okay, you got to trust him from the heart. But here you can see kind of the same thing playing out. We don't want God to be captured by Absalom. Let's bring the ark out. Let's make sure that God is going with David. But look at what David does. Verse 25. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. See, David understands that God isn't confined to the ark. He doesn't need to bring God with him like a good luck charm. Instead, he entrusts his life to God, who will do whatever seems good to him. You know, what we're seeing here is that David, when his back is against the wall, turns to God in a way we haven't seen, we also haven't seen in forever. We see real trust and, you know, Psalm 3, David wrote a psalm about this time of his life specifically. I just want to read to you a few of the lines from what he said. Psalm 3, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustains me. See, sometimes, sometimes it's only when you realize that God truly is all you have that you find that God is all you need. And really, God God is all you ever needed. You know, I read a story once about this guy named Randy. His wife went into premature labor. The baby was just five months, so you guys know this is really early and they had some complications with a C-section they were trying to do, and the wife ended up bleeding out and passing away in labor. And the baby survived for a couple of weeks, but then the baby also passed away in the NICU. And just like Randy, uh, just like that, Randy became a widower and also the single father of the kids they already had. I think they had like five kids already. So it was just terrible, like the worst situation that you could think of. Now, Randy was a Christian in the hospital. He was praying in the NICU. He was praying. And now he was left with this terrible situation. He just couldn't believe. He just didn't know what to do, right? All their plans were done, their future. He didn't know what he was going to do with the kids. But over the next few months, many of his brothers and sisters from church he was talking about and just many other Christians who heard about what happened, they helped him. They raised money uh, to help uh, buy food and pay hospital expenses, and they helped with the kids. And he experienced, he said, the, the tangible love of God in a way he never had before. And when he felt himself slipping into despair, he remembered that he would see his wife again, that God had been gracious to save her. And he said at the end of it, months later, years later, he said, of course, he wishes his wife was still with him, that his daughter had made it. Of course he does. But he could see now that through the worst experience of his life, he was able to learn about the goodness of God in a way that he never had before. God drew him to himself and he learned to trust him. He said, because of God, Now I have no fear for the future. I know it'll be good because it'll be what God wants. And really, that's it. It's not that these things are good in of themselves. It's not that Absalom rebelling and trying to take over and all the bloodshed. It's not that a baby passing away in the hospital. It's not that these things are good. But God can bring good out of them. Let him do what seems good to him. You know, when David was young and full of zeal, remember, he stood up to the giant Goliath. He knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that God was with him. Do you remember? Everyone was so scared. And David was like, we got this. God has us. I fought lions. I fought bears. I know that God will deliver me from this giant. And that is what made David so great. It's not that he was perfect. We've seen he's not perfect, but he trusted in God with all his heart. But lately, it seemed like David didn't that David from the past didn't exist anymore. But this is the goodness of the God who trades beauty for ashes. David, you got to understand this. David is reaping the consequences of his sin and his failures. But what we're seeing here is that it's not just punishment. It's not just consequences. That through this, God isn't pushing David away. You see this? But through this, through what David deserves even, God is working it out for good. God is actually drawing him closer. God is loving David through this, drawing that young shepherd boy back, full of faith, out of this indecisive failure of an old man. God is drawing him back to himself. And for you and for me, I mean, whether or not our pain is a result of our own failings, and a lot of times it isn't, at least as far as we can tell. When we lose loved ones with Randy, it was something that just seemed to come out of the blue with my friend who played soccer. God wants us to know this, to see this. And we see hints of this in David's life right here, that God does work all things out for good. He's giving David this opportunity and he's gently leading him to this opportunity to finally come back to him again. God helps him to repentance. He's drawing him. He's drawing us maybe even now. See, one of the things we've got to understand is that through the things that God brings into our lives or allows into our lives, he's not pushing us away. He's drawing us closer. And this leads to the third and final point, the trace, T-R-A-C-E, the trace, which is about the opportunity pain gives us to receive more to receive more mercy and grace and help in time of need. See, Charles Spurgeon, he once said, um, one of my favorite quotes of him, he said, God is too good to be unkind, and he is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. He's talking about the suffering and the pain and the trials and tribulations that we go through. God isn't making a mistake. He isn't trying to be unkind to you. And even if you can't see the purpose of it, you can trust his heart that he wants to work it out for good. But sometimes we can trace his hand. And that's what we see here in verse 27. The king also said to Zadok the priest, are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons. Ahimaaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remain there. So he sends them back. They're going to be his eyes and ears in the city. They are going to serve God still, and hopefully they can help bring David back whatever the Lord wills. But look at verse 30. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is right outside the old city, weeping as he went barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and they went up weeping as they went. So David, he's weeping here just because God is drawing him to himself, just because God is restoring his faith and his trust in him. Even though uh, there are certain good things that are coming out of this, we've never seen David weep like this. Pain is still pain. Just because God trusts, uh, David trusts in God doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. I mean, and just count it off, right? A broken family, broken kingdom, the people of God divided with a possibly bloody civil war on the horizon. Yeah, it's really, really bad. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He doesn't know what to do. There's no plan really. And then David hears this even worse, verse 31. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. Now, Ahithophel is not just another one of uh, these hard to pronounce names that we've been seeing. Ahithophel, we talked about him last week, is the greatest advisor to the king in Israel. He's the wisest man. And the fact that he joined Absalom gave clout and credibility to Absalom's insurrection and regime. Ahithophel was so wise that people would take his counsel as gospel. It's like at the master's seminary where I went to seminary, when I went to school, If John MacArthur said it, then you believe it, and that settles it, right? Because he is the Ahithophel of that school. And strategically, this was a disaster for David. you got the smartest guy on the other side. you got the guy that you trusted, that you confided in. Now he is against you. He is an enemy. David knows it'll take a miracle to get out of this situation. He knows that he has no decisive strategic advantage or military advantage in any way. So what does he do? Verse 31. He prays, and David said, "O oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness." And really, there's no way that this is going to happen on a human level. This would take divine intervention, supernatural power. David prays, and then look—you can see God's hand. While David was coming, verse 32, to the summit where God was worshiped, behold, Hushai the Archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. Now. Right after David prays, someone appears to meet him at the top of the mountain, right at the place where God is worshipped, at the summit of the Mount of Olives, a friend shows up, Hushai the Archite. Now, this is a name to remember. He'll show up again, Hushai the Archite. He's a confidant of the king, another man people listen to. And what we're going to see in a couple of chapters, maybe the only person literally in all of Israel that can turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And David recognizes this right away. He throws up a desperate prayer to heaven and just a few steps later, who should walk up but the one guy that could help him. David said to him, if you go with me, you will be a burden to me. Doesn't sound very thankful here in the moment. It sounds a little messed up, in fact. But Hushai was probably On the older side, that's where his some of his wisdom came from. And he was so loyal, uh, there was probably no way he wouldn't go with David unless he could see that there was a better use for him to stay. So David convinces him, it's better for you to stay than for you to come with me. Verse 34, but if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I will be your servant, then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priest with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priest. Behold, their two sons are with them there, Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them, you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. So David just lays out just the rough outline of a plan. Just go back, try to deal with Ahithophel. We got some other people in the city. We got the priest's. And Hushai goes. He's going to pretend to serve Absalom. He's going to try to help out David. But don't miss what happens here. David, he's weeping. He's down. He's trying to trust in God. Then he hears even worse news that there's basically no way this is going to work out. So he prays desperately. And in that moment, what does God do? Does God solve all his problems? Does he create a miracle where Absalom's army just disappears? Nothing like that happens, but. God listens to that one desperate prayer and he answers it right away. You know, sometimes it seems like God isn't working, especially when things are going bad. Sometimes people say that if you have pain and suffering and trouble in your life, it's a sign that God is distant, that God is unhappy with you in some way that God is pushing you away, leaving you alone. In fact, I think you don't have to have people tell you that. I think we just feel that on our own sometimes. You're praying. It feels like heaven's door is closed. You're praying. It seems like God's ear isn't working. And I know this because uh, I think it was in my grandma's bathroom. There was this thing hung up called footprints. Do you guys know what it is? It's a poem. You might have it in your bathroom too. It's cool. It goes, one night I had a dream. It's bringing back memories here. I dreamed I was walking along the beach with the Lord. And across the sky flashed scenes from my life. For each scene, I noticed two sets of footprints in the sand. One belonged to me and the others to the Lord. When the last scene of my life flashed before us, I looked back at the footprints in the sand, and I noticed that many times along the path of my life, there was only one set of footprints. I also noticed that it happened at the very lowest and saddest times in my life. This really bothered me. And I questioned the Lord about it. Lord, you said that once I decided to follow you, you would walk with me all the way. But I've noticed that during the most troublesome times in my life, there is only one set of footprints. I don't understand why in times when I needed you the most, you should leave me. The Lord replied, my precious, precious child, I love you. I would never leave you during your times of trial and suffering. When you saw only one set of footprints, it was then that I carried you. And maybe you love it. okay? Maybe you think it's corny. I feel like because it's hung up in the bathroom, it doesn't really help the effect. It's a little sentimental, too. And I'm kind of sentimental, so I kind of like it. But I bring it up because of what the person says, because I hear this all the time. It's such a part of our lived experience as Christians that during the hardest times, it appears like God isn't with us or that he's further away or that somehow we got to do it on our own. This is often how we feel. But the truth is, as the poem says, God carries us. And the poem doesn't go far enough. God is always carrying us. And you know, Spurgeon said, sometimes we can't trace his hand, but we can trust his heart. The truth is, and we see this in David's life right here, that God does allow us to see little glimpses of what he's doing with his hand. David doesn't know what's going to happen. He doesn't know how God is going to bring him out of this situation. He doesn't know if he'll ever come back to Jerusalem or even if he will survive this. But he prays to God that God will do something to help him with Ahithophel. And God answers right away by sending his friend Hushai the Archite. It's a hint. It's a clear sign that God is still listening. Do you see that? God hasn't abandoned him. Even though he did that thing with Bathsheba, even though he killed Uriah, even though he's failed as a father with Amnon and Absalom, God is still with him. And if we have eyes to see and ears to hear, I think you might see some hints, some clear signs too in your own life, because that's what God is like. In your darkest hour, when it seems like God couldn't be further away. And I think you might know this if you can just search your own memory or think about your own experience. You'll get a text from a friend or someone from church will reach out to you or a verse will just come to mind in that moment. God oftentimes lets us see the tracing of his hand working in our lives in small ways, usually, but he lets us see it. So the question is, will we look for it? Will we look for it? Whatever pain you're going through, God wants us to know that there's goodness and joy at the end of it. What hints is he dropping? Because I think a lot of times he is. What blessings has he brought to you? Can you receive them for what they are? Can you find hope in them? I pray that we will. And for those of us who can't see anything, there's one more thing that I want to show you, and hopefully you can hold on to this. This is the lowest point in David's life. This is the lowest point, walking this path out of Jerusalem in shame, leaving the city that was called after his own name, betrayed, rejected by his own people, wallowing in the guilt of his own responsibility. I mean, can you imagine this kind of pain? It's not physical per se, but it's just the guilt. It just stabs you right through the heart. I think to a certain extent, we all can. We can see a little bit of our pain, our failures, us having to reap the consequences of what we sow. We know what it's like to have family problems. We know what it's like to be betrayed by people that we were close to. But you know who knows exactly how David felt? God himself. You know, we associate the Mount of Olives with a different person, don't we? We know about somebody We know about somebody who walked the exact same path that David walked out of Jerusalem, up the Mount of Olives. He left the uh, the city that should have loved him. He was betrayed. He was rejected by his own people. But unlike David, the guilt he bore was not his own. And worse, here's where their paths diverge. Here's where the son of David takes a different way than David himself This son of David prayed to the father in this same spot, and he said, Father, if possible, remove this cup from me. But God didn't send Hushai to comfort him, no. The father instead sent his only son to the cross where he died the death we deserve. He bore the wrath we deserve. He gave his life as a ransom for many. Jesus knows what pain is, even worse than what David did. And he did this, why? Why? at least so in part that we could know. We who have placed our faith in him, who know that he died for us and lives and intercedes for us so that we who are called beloved by him could know that there is something we could always hold on to. Romans eight thirty one. Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So that we can know that whatever happens is good, that God has our best interest at heart, that God actually does love us no matter what we are going through. When you can't trace his hand, you could trust his heart. Where do you see his heart? You see it on the cross of Jesus Christ. We'll close here. I read a story once about a woman who visited a silversmith. There's a different kind of fire there. She saw him hold a piece of fire, uh, silver, excuse me, over the fire uh, until it really started to heat up and it started to glow a different color. And he explained to her that you needed to hold it steady right in the middle of the fire as close as you can at the hottest point to, to heat up the silver to the right temperature. And they just sat there and they're just watching the silver and he's just holding it. And after a few minutes, she kind of got impatient and she asked, do you have to just sit here the whole time? Like, uh, we can go, you know, like you could just hang it up or whatever. Like, you don't have to do this for me. Um, and he said, no, you know, I actually have to stay here the whole time. I can't just leave it. Because if I leave it in the fire too long, then it'll damage the fire. I mean, damage the silver, excuse me. It's not about damaging the silver. It's about burning away the impurities. So they're standing there and she's just watching him and he's holding it at exactly the right place that he wants it. And then she asked him after a few more minutes, how do you know when it's done? And he said, I know when silver is fully refined, when I can see my own image in it. And that's really it. That's it. God doesn't allow us to go through fire to destroy us, but to refine us. As Malachi 3.3 says, he does refine us just like silver. And so the fire teaches us about ourselves and pushes us toward God. And we can see his goodness in it, I hope. But ultimately what God is doing is making us more like him. God always has a purpose for everything that he does. He is refining us. He's making us better. He's drawing us closer to himself. He's allowing us to know his goodness in new ways. He's bringing us to glory. And when we are there, he will wipe away every tear from every eye and there won't be any more pain or sadness or crying or death for the former things will pass away. So Christian, all I can say is whatever you're going through, whatever fire you find yourself in, you got to know that God is holding you in the exact right place. He wants you to make you into the person he wants you to be. So learn what you need to weep If you need to, but know that at the end of this, you will see the goodness of the Lord even in you. And glory to him who makes everything, including us, new. Father, we come before you this afternoon, and I pray that you would impart these lessons into our heart. And God, it really is true that all we need is you. You made us for yourself. We are restless until we find our rest in you. I pray, God, that you would draw us near. And, God, I know that many of my brothers and sisters are struggling and are going through difficult things. God, I pray for comfort. I pray for relief. I pray for healing. But, God, even more than that, I pray, Father, that they would know your love for them, a love that surpasses knowledge, a love that will last unto eternity. God, we trust you. We rejoice in your goodness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.